Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from articles, social media, past audiobooks, and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. Welcome, fans of The Spoken Word. This is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, one of my favorite authors that I uh, was lucky enough to do a few books for, a few audiobooks, and I hope you very much like him, and I think you will. His name is Steve Vernon, and I'll be right back. Miles Junction, Rust Belt, USA, where hope is scarce and hardship is a way of life. It's but one of many northeastern Ohio towns, long forgotten and left behind, its residents living on the cusp of financial, emotional, even spiritual destitution. Their lives and others are linked by a ruined yet starkly beautiful post-industrial landscape, a desolate vestige of our fractured American dream. In just the right light, is a glimpse at one region's bleak inheritance and the precarious lives of those who remain. Written by William R. Solden and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. And we're back. Today, we're going to talk a little about one of my favorite authors, Steve Vernon. Steve is someone that I have done, let's see, uh, I don't know, two or three books. The first one I remember very well was called I Know Why the Waters of the Sea Taste of Salt. And that is about a kamikaze pilot. I've probably played passages from that. Uh, I know at least once or twice. So uh, what I really want to say in this podcast is that he can scare the ever-loving wits out of you. I mean, he really, he is a great writer of, I guess you'd say horror or his brand of horror. And um, I just think he's great. And I'm, I'm hoping to do something by him in the future, the very near future, if possible. Um, so what I'm, I'm going to play today, first of all, anyway, is a piece of a book he wrote called Cat Call. Now, this isn't um, a rerun show or a clip show like I spent so much time talking about in the past. This is not a clip show, but I, I might be playing some of the same material that I did uh, back then, which was at least a month ago. So this is from Catcall, Steve Vernon. 
All we knew was somebody must be feeding it, because every now and then we would look in from the hedge on the far side of the yard and see the cat nibbling daintily on what looked to be raw hamburger. Guts, proclaimed Jeremy Hooter, making a thick, juicy, swizzling noise with his lips and tongue pressed against his stainless steel braces. It's guts, is what it is. Great big gobs of all guts, amplified Charlie Roundbert. Charlie Roundbert was only half of Jeremy's size and age, but he might as well have been Jeremy's shadow. The two boys stuck together just that closely, and yet, as far as I knew, the two of them never had anything nice to say to each other. Owl guts, Charlie repeated. We all took up the chant except Jeremy, who didn't think it was funny at all. Owl guts, owl guts, owl guts. Owl was what we always called Jeremy, because of his last name. It didn't help that Jeremy wore a pair of glasses that made Coke bottle bottoms look like microscope slides. The glasses always reminded me of Dr. Cyclops. You know the guy from the movies? It always looked to me like Jeremy was staring at us through a microscope, like we were some kind of alien bacteria from Planet X. I had a microscope given to me on my 10th birthday. Not one of those little bitty plastic toys they sell with the chemistry sets you order from the Christmas catalog, but a big old-fashioned kind that my dad found in a basement he'd been paid to empty. The basement had belonged to old Doc Hawkomer, and when the doctor saw the microscope, he told my dad to go ahead and take it. He had a new one he used anyways. My dad always said that the microscope was probably contaminated with all kinds of plagues and diseases, and he was likely being ten kinds of an idiot giving it to a kid like me. I told my dad not to worry. Germs didn't stick to dead things like microscopes and houses. Germs stuck to people. Germs needed meat to feed on, and he probably shouldn't worry so much. I knew he wasn't being all that serious anyways. He was my dad, and the only person I had in this world, next to my dog Riley. The only difference was, Dad was real. Riley had been real, but he was imaginary now, since the timber truck ran over him. I knew my dad liked to worry about me, like it was his hobby or something. And I loved him for this worry, imaginary or not. I got Riley from my mom when I was two. Riley was a big black Labrador retriever, with feet as big as snowshoes in the pictures we have of him. We don't have too many pictures of Mom, because it was my mom's camera, and Dad never felt that comfortable using it. He's got his own camera now, and he uses it whenever he can. Riley was my dog and he would play fetch with me with a worn-out baseball from the time the sun got up in the morning until the time it crawled back into bed. He was killed when I was eight years old because of a ball I had misthrown. The ball bounced out into the roadway, and Riley followed the lure of the ball like a trout following a wriggling worm. The truck rolled over him before I even had a chance to scream. I got Riley when I was two, and my mom died when I was three, and Riley died when I was eight. And I can still remember how I used to stare into his big black jujube eyes and see my mother smiling out from inside those eyes. I loved Riley better than I loved spaghetti, and I love spaghetti a lot. Jeremy, who was older than I am, 
told me once that he had watched from the bushes as the police ambulance medics scraped my mom off of the trunk of the tree like she was so much hamburger meat. I told him he was a liar. I said that there was no way that would happen, that you just couldn't make a person into hamburger meat. We got into a fight over that, and he probably would have beaten me up, but I think he felt bad for what he said to me. Jeremy had said to me that some of the pieces of my mom had been so small that the police had needed a microscope to find them. I liked my microscope a lot. In the summer, I liked to mix swamp water and hay in a big mason jar and let it sit and steep out back behind the old garage where the sun always shines until my dad would say something to me about that unholy stink and I would take the water and make as many slides as I could and would dump the rest of it out back in the ditch. The ditch always smelled like swamp water, although I blamed the smell on Jeremy because he liked to pee in the ditch whenever he came over to visit. The slides were always different. I liked to see paramecium and amoeba and all kinds of other things that I didn't know the names of. I asked my dad once where they'd all come from and how they got into the water. He said some of them were probably in the swamp water to begin with, and some of them were in the hay. Only the ones in the hay were sleeping, like seeds waiting to be rained on and hatched. Dormant, he called it, like they were waiting behind some kind of door. I also liked to look at the hydro plants that I found under the lily pads of the swamp behind the school. I would wade out into the swamp in my big rubber boots that used to be Dad's until they started to leak. One day I got caught in the mud and nearly sucked under, and my friends had to run for my dad. Dad waded out to get me. And then for a while, I thought he was going to get stuck too. And then I had this crazy picture in my mind of the whole town being out here, stuck in the muck, waiting for the frogs and the leeches and the mosquitoes to suck us all dry. Only Mr. Thornton came along with a big old rope and pulled the two of us out of there before the leeches, frogs, and mosquitoes had a decent chance to get us. After that, my dad told me to stay away from that swamp. He told me that three winters before I was born, two ice skaters went down through the ice and didn't come back up. My dad believed that because of the swamp had developed a taste for people, and it was just waiting for its next meal to come along, like some kind of giant Venus flytrap. Jeremy had a Venus flytrap plant that his mother bought at a county fair. In the summer, it was too hot to do much of anything else. We used to watch it take flies luring them in slowly and then snapping them up like good old Godzilla. I wanted a plant just like it for the longest time, but my dad wouldn't buy one because he said we didn't need it. My dad was the town's champion fly swatter. He took pride in the fact that he could snag a house fly with his bare hands. You've got to watch for that hand-washing motion that flies make, he told me one too many times. When they make that hand-washing motion, you know that they are too busy thinking about washing their hands to think about jumping into flight, so you can grab them because they aren't really looking for it. Right, Dad, I said. If Chismar's Grossateria ever closes down, we'll be able to live off the flies you catch for us. I like going down to Chismar's Grossateria because it always smelled of the fresh pies that Mrs. Chismar baked every day. Sometimes apple, sometimes peach, but best of all was her blackberry pie. Dad always said that Mrs. Chismar's blackberry pie made your belly want to climb out of your stomach and dance itself a jig for sheer joy.
I always told my dad that your belly was your stomach, but that never stopped him from slapping his stomach every time he walked into Chismar's Grossiteria and smelling those pies and telling Mrs. Chismar that her apple pie made his belly want to climb out of his stomach and dance. The neatest part of Chismar's Grossiteria was the big meat shop out back where Mr. Chismar worked. I didn't really like the sound of the butchering that you heard every Monday morning and the thick, chewy whiz of the meat saw always made my belly want to climb out of my stomach and puke. But the sight of the dancing flypaper, covering in all those flies, was really neat. It was like a kind of hanging jewelry, only it was alive, and while Dad ordered the meat, I liked to try and count the flies that were stuck on each strip. Mr. Thornton used flypaper in the school washroom once, because the old plumbing didn't work so well. The pipes didn't suck the water down quickly enough. The water that didn't go down the drains left a smell that the flies liked to follow, so Mr. Thornton hung flypaper up to catch them. Mr. Thornton was the school caretaker. He made sure everything stayed clean. My dad always called him a janitor, and when I asked Dad once what the difference was between a caretaker and a janitor, he said, Listen, you can call a turd full of freshly dropped cow pie a bouquet of daffodils, if you want to do, but that doesn't do anything about the stink. It was the same thing about the funnel house. It wasn't really a house, as far as we kids could tell. It was more like a piece of leftover Halloween decoration, like the old school float that Vice Principal Bindles parked in his garage all year, waiting for the Fourth of July parade. It really wasn't a float. It was just an old dory that Vice Principal Bindles covered with tissue paper flowers and nailed to a nearly broken trailer. It still stank of fish, even though it hadn't touched an ocean for more years than I was old. But it was our school float, and every 4th of July, Vice Principal Bindles and whoever was crazy enough to help him made new flowers and repainted the parts that showed and wheeled it out and hooked it up behind Vice Principal Bindles' old Oldsmobile for the whole town to see. It really wasn't much of a parade when you think of it. It was just a school float and a band of marching musicians that sounded worse than cats screaming at midnight a wagon full of puppies that old lady cray would drag along behind her with bows around each of the puppies that she was trying to find a home for before she had to take them out and drown them in the swamp okay and that of course was steve vernon's cat call and listen i i got to backpedal a little bit here i i said I used the word horror um, when I was talking about Steve uh, a few moments ago. Um, it it it's more like you know, and I I I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. It's a little bit more like Stephen King. Stephen King is, for those of you who are familiar with his writing style, Stephen King is not all horror it's it's a lot of things and a lot of his uh writing is of course <laughs> pretty horrifying uh stories but uh this really reminds me of stand by me which is of course uh, a movie adapted from a stephen king story 
So, uh, and like I said, I hope Steve doesn't mind me saying that. And I'm, I'm not accusing him of being a copycat because he certainly isn't. His, his work struck me as a new audiobook narrator as being very poetic. Uh, especially, I know why the waters of the sea taste of salt. If you can ever get a chance to read or listen to the audiobook, the full audiobook, uh, it's very poetic. And in a way, I think maybe even Catcall is. But getting back to the subject at hand, we we got another one of uh, of Steve of uh, Steve Vernon's stories, and I think you'll like it. It's called Harry's Mermaid, and I I need to set this up a little bit for you uh, before we begin, because I'm only playing, you know, bits and pieces of these books uh, that I've done in the past. So I I, I need to do a little bit of a backstory. Harry's Mermaid Mermaid is about three guys, uh, homeless guys, street people um, who know each other and I guess are friends and who always go fishing together to catch their food, obviously. Food um, meaning the fish in the harbor. And this is what happens on a certain day when they are doing that. This is Harry's Mermaid by Steve Vernon. Hope you like it. Do you ever regret anything, Easter? He caught me off guard, so I lied. Hell no, I said. What the hell would I regret anyway? Maybe a bottle or two empty too fast. That's all a man ever really regrets. Life, women, money. It all just empties way too fast. Harry grinned one of those hollowed-out grins that salesmen give you when they think you're getting ready to buy something. Being the fine financial success story I am, I don't get that grin very often. So I noticed it right off. Then Harry stood up. Give me that rod, he said. Let me show you how to cast deep. Jarvis handed over the fishing rod with the reluctance of a fellow handing over his wife. Just one time, mind you. Just one time, and then you got to give it back. One time's all I need, Harry said. Just sit back and watch. Harry tilted the rod way back. He paused for just a moment, like he was gathering his strength. There was a strange kind of fire burning in the back of his eyes like he'd waited all his life for just this cast. Remember this, Harry said, right before casting. Only the way he spoke it was more like he meant, Remember me. He gave a heave and the line snaked over the harbor, arcing out like the world's thinnest rainbow sailing past the seagulls tugboats and the fishing trawlers, sailing out past all reason, like old Harry was trying to hook down the sun. And then it landed. Splash. Mid-channel. Nearly a half mile out. And then something took a hold of the hook. Harry was a hard man to forget. He was a big man, built like a wall with legs. Even his face was big like a block of dusty concrete. He stayed big right up to the very end. Most fellows hooked by the bottle, they lean down and wear out real fast with too many liquid calories. Not Harry. 
Harry was a regular rock of Gibraltar. Harry had been a bricklayer, same as his daddy and his granddaddy before that. It was funny how family ties can work. No matter how far Harry walked, he stood in his daddy's shadow, twice shadowed by his granddad's before. I wondered how many shadows a man could stand in. Things were happy once for Harry. He had a home and a wife and three kids, a boy and two girls. He had it all until the day he was laying brick on a schoolhouse wall, and this layer of bricks kicked over and come down on the head of the apprentice he was working with. It would have been okay if it hadn't been such a hot day the apprentice took his hard hat off to mop the sweat. It would have been okay if the apprentice hadn't happened to be Harry's only son. All of that brick coming down. It squashed the boy's skull like one of those jellyfish you stomp on the beach. The papers called it an accident. But Harry never did figure out how he could ever forgive himself. Some cuts sliced way too deep for forgiving. He climbed into the bottle like a wish spinning down a bottomless well. He lost his job, his house, his wife, and his kids. The order of loss depended on just how drunk Harry was when he retold the story. Cheap, dry, white wine. That was Harry's poison. Never any red wine. I figured he didn't much care for the color red anymore. There was too much blood in it. Too much brick. I saw it out there in the water, only I didn't say anything. I wasn't sure if Harry had hooked something or if it was the other way around. Jarvis saw it next and jumped up like a jack-in-the-box on speed. You got something, he shouted. You got something for sure. I see her, Harry said, grinning the kind of grin you'd expect to see in a falling airplane. Then I saw what he'd caught. He had caught a beautiful woman, with hair like a rake of seaweed spinning out behind her and the tail of a dolphin bobbing up where her ass ought to be. A mermaid. Old Harry had gone and caught himself an honest to Odysseus mermaid. Only, there was something about that mermaid I didn't much care for. There was something that ran my blood colder than a deep, frozen refrigerator. Let it go, I quietly said. Only I couldn't make myself heard over Jarvis's yelling. And that, of course, was from Harry's mermaid one of many stories books from a great canadian author named steve vernon who i very much hope will <laughs> use me again um so I, i'm glad uh, i'm glad i got to play this for you and i hope you very much enjoyed it and that should do it for this episode if you enjoyed your visit today please tell your friends. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks Anchor.fm for the chance 
to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.